0: Thank you, choir, and thank you, Dr. Long, thank you, Miss Sandy. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open to Luke chapter 20. Right, today we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. Let's hear God's Word together. It says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your word, Lord, we pray uh, for your mercy, we pray for your grace, we pray for your Holy Spirit to to uh, illumine our hearts so that we might understand, we might see your word, uh, and that we might take it and apply it and use it in our lives. Uh, Lord, without your help, we cannot do that, Uh, and so Lord, we pray uh, that you would meet with us in this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, uh, it is often said, and it seems to be a proven fact, uh, that nothing is more divisive than the combination of the two subjects that are before us this morning, politics and religion. Even as I say those words together, I feel a certain amount of Anxiety, a certain amount of trepidation welling up in me, and if you're honest, I'm sure you sort of feel a little bit of that too. As I say that this morning, uh, and rightly so, uh, as we consider the course of human history, it's easy to see sort of the, the red flags, the, the dangers that are presented when these two areas sort of intersect. You know, we we can think all the way really back to the Old Testament to prove this point, but just consider for a moment. Uh, the New Testament church. Uh, consider the ways that, that governments have tried to influence, attempts to, to run the church. Uh, you think about the, the Roman influence just in the first century alone, how they destroyed the church. They were persecuting the church and what happened because of that. Uh, we think about the crusades. We think about how leaders have falsely used scripture to support their, their own political agendas um, you know, whether it was slavery or, or just this week, uh, one of our members sent me a, uh, a news headline and it was one of the governors, it was, I think the governor of California, uh, was using scripture on billboards to support abortion. He was using scripture to support abortion. So we think about the way that, that governmental influence on the church and on these things have, has been bad, right? In a political sense, it has not been a great thing. On the other hand, we we also think of the way that the church has abused its power in the world. Uh, We think about uh, the way that that, uh, popes or or priests have abused their powers. We think of ways that that even now, preachers and pastors and people with influence in the church uh, try to make the church a a political influence, to, to try to give authority to the church on a civil level even when we think about missionaries uh, you know the the, one of the dangers of christianity in america is that people outside of america see christianity as a american thing right it's it's predominantly sort of a a white democratic capitalist kind of religion reality is it's none of those things predominantly or maybe at all Uh, and so we see how when we intersect these two things, uh, it can be dangerous, it can be um, harmful, uh, and it can be, um, I'm trying to think of good words here, not great, right? <laughs> um, there's a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas, a lot of potential downfalls. And so, uh, I say all that to say, if you want to start a fight, or if you just want to see people squirm, as some of you are right now, as I sort of am right now, just bring up politics and religion. Now, it's with all of those dangers in mind that we turn to our text today. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll recall that in verses 9 through 18, uh, Jesus told the parable of the wicked tenants, right? Uh, and you remember that, that the idea there was there was a man who planted a vineyard, and he led it out to these tenants. Uh, When it came time to reap the harvest, he sent one of his servants, they beat the servant, they sent him out, so he sends another servant, they do the same thing, he sends a third servant, they do the same thing, and he says, well, what will I do? So he decides to send his beloved son, thinking now I have sent someone with the proper amount of authority, the proper amount of power, they'll have to recognize my son. But is that what happens? No. Uh, Instead of recognizing the son as the the heir, the rightful heir, they say, hey, this is the heir. If we kill him, maybe we can receive his inheritance. We can receive what is rightly his. So they kill the son. And you recall that Jesus is telling this sort of autobiographically. It's it's a story about himself, uh, about what God the Father had done and what Jesus had come to do. And the people, they recognize, the leaders particularly, that Jesus is saying this about them Uh, there at the end of that parable he says that that god will come the the master will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to others and they said when they heard this they said surely not that they can't believe that that jesus would speak this way that god would take away what they felt was rightly theirs and so they are offended by jesus's words so much so that now in our passage today they are once again seeking to, to lay hands on him. They are seeking to kill him because they perceive that this parable was against him. Now, I, I know I've done this, uh, it feels like most every week for the past three or four weeks, but again, before we jump in full scale, I want us to just pull back for a second and recognize that, that the, the bigger picture of this Passion Week is one of, of tension building, Right? It's, it began when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. It has escalated at every moment. The tension is building around Jesus. And what you need, to, what I want you to see, is that while the Pharisees think they're the one guiding this ship, they, they think they're the ones who are in control of all of these events, who in reality is steering this? It's Jesus, right? He is the one very intentionally sort of poking the bear, we might say. He recognizes what he is doing at every one of these turns. That every time he says these things, that he does these things, it just encourages the Pharisees to want to kill him. And so very intentionally here, Jesus is driving himself to the cross. Again, I know I have made that point over and over and over again, and I know you feel like you've got it, and I'm sure you do, but just think about how we normally go through this week. We're normally rushing through it around Easter time, right? We don't normally have the opportunity to take this time and very intentionally and slowly work through this gospel narrative. But when we do that, we can't help but see how things are are building up how the tension is building up. And what we can't help but recognize is that Jesus here, every moment is a moment of grace. Every moment is a moment of mercy to us. He knows full well what's coming. He knows where he's headed. And yet he keeps pushing things so that he is headed there, right? He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't try to get out of the Father's plan but he keeps pushing so that he is headed to the cross, and he's headed there for you and I. He is the sovereign Lord of all things, even these things. Now, that, that sovereignty is going to be important in, in just a moment, uh, but for now, I recognize that the chief priests, they want to kill him, uh, but they can't. They, they can't attack him directly because they are afraid of the people. And so what they have to do is a little bit of espionage here, right? That They have to send spies with sweet words there in verse 21, words that we should recognize are lies. They're, they're true in and of themselves, but coming out of those mouths, they are lies. So they, they send these spies to try to find a way to get to Jesus. And what they come up with, as Ben mentioned earlier, is a plan that I'm sure they were convinced was foolproof. And honestly, on the surface, it seems like a plan that may be foolproof. Because it combines the two things that we said we should never combine. Politics and religion. And we're going to see that that rather than stumping or tripping up Jesus, these topics are only going to serve to show his great wisdom. uh, Wisdom that will amaze and marvel even these Jewish leaders and wisdom that teaches us uh, much about our attitudes towards government and much about our attitudes towards God himself, okay? So those are the two things that, that I want us to try to drive towards. What are our attitudes towards government? And what are our attitudes towards God himself? So let's look at it together. My, my plan here is to kind of move through points one and two really quickly and then stay on point three for, for a little while, okay? So first in this passage, I want you to notice a potentially fatal question. Potentially fatal question. Uh, these Jewish leaders have infiltrated. They have a surefire plan. And so there in verse 22, they ask, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly the, the, teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar?" Or not. In other words, should we pay our taxes or should we not pay our taxes? That's the question. That, that's what they are asking Jesus in this moment. Now that's a, a pretty familiar question even in our country, even in our time. We recognize politically how, how controversial it is now, and we should understand how controversial this topic would have been even then people felt like the Roman government was stealing from them. In some cases, they were stealing from them. And so they hated the tax, so much so that if Jesus were to have said, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, it most likely would have caused a revolt. People were so enamored with Jesus at this point that if he, a a religious leader, had said to them, you don't have to pay it, they would have stopped paying it. They would have revolted against the Romans which would have inevitably led to what? The Romans coming and seizing Jesus, throwing him in jail, maybe even killing him. So, we see the, the plan of the Pharisees, right? That, that's their goal. That's what they want, is to push Jesus to that end. And so, on the one hand, you have the political danger. But on the other hand, if Jesus says to these folks, yes, you must pay the tax, he would be considered a traitor to the Jewish people. To the Jewish cause, and they would all have begun to, to doubt his claim as the Messiah, at least from their expectation, their idea of what the Messiah should be, the king that, that didn't bow to Rome but overthrew Rome, they would have said, No, we, we cannot follow you. And so, either way, for the Pharisees, they get what they want, right? Either Jesus in jail and dead, or either Jesus now just a man that no one follows. That's how they see this working out. Jesus seems to be caught in a no-win situation. But notice that their foolproof question. It's based on a faulty premise. A premise that that they can't see as faulty, but, but it's one that is faulty nonetheless. The assumption here is that earthly rulers and that God are diametrically opposed to one another that a person cannot pay taxes to Caesar and also follow God. In other words, their, their, their misconception is that religion and politics are two completely separate spheres of influence, two separate spheres of life, and the two do not mix. Now, I want to pause long enough to say that we see this same assumption very often in our world today. You know, you think about various religious groups, the, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, the, the Amish, they, they function under something like this, that, that government is, is not good. We, don't, we won't function in it at all, right? But even we as Protestants, we tend, as American Protestants, we tend... To to try to have a hard and fast separation, not just between church and state, but between Christianity and state. That's a distinction we're going to come back to in just a minute. But I hope you recognize what I'm saying there. We we try to separate our religious lives completely from our political lives. But again, the idea is that the two, what Jesus is, is going to say to us, is that they aren't separate worlds. That they cannot be opposed to one another. So that leads us to our second point. We've seen a potentially fatal question. Secondly, here we see an unrefutable answer. An unrefutable answer. Jesus says there in verse 24. He says, "Show me a denarius. Show me a coin. Show me a penny." He says, "What's on it?" Well, obviously, there's an image of Caesar on that coin. And there's also an inscription on that coin, and that inscription would have read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, in earthly terms, whose coin was it? Caesar's, right? It bore his image. It bore his inscription. And so Jesus says there in verse 25, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, Jesus here is in some way confirming the legitimate place of earthly governments even in the life of a Christian. Give to the government, give to your leaders the things owed to them. Render unto Caesar. At the same time, though, notice he continues on in verse 25. If he had just stopped there, we would understand we would move on. But notice, he does not stop there. He says, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to guide the things that are God. Do both. Now, they're not opposed. Pay your taxes and do your religious duties. Now, before we try to unpack that, just recognize that that Jesus here has effectively, you know, ended the attempt to catch him in what he has said. Uh, None of them can openly deny their obligation, even if they don't like it, to render unto Caesar. And at the same time, none of them would deny their obligation to render unto God. And so Christ, once again, he slips through their fingers. The the wisdom of God, it proves to be greater than, than the wisdom of men but all of this leaves us with important and difficult questions how can jesus say this how can jesus mix these two fields together and if they are what should we render what should we render to caesar and what should we render to god well that leaves us with our third and final point and it's the question what will you render Let's begin with Caesar. Uh, If Jesus is affirming the place of civil government, and we said that he is, then why is he doing that, and what is really our obligation? Why? Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. You recall that that Paul here has moved through his letter. He's given us all of this great theology, this this great works, uh, not works, but faith theology, and now he comes to chapter 13 And he's giving us practical insights, right? Practical ways, which is how Paul's letters work, how we should live based off of what he has said, right? And here he kind of gives us a commentary on all that Jesus says in this passage. He says, first, let every person, there in chapter 13 and verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist exist have been instituted by God. In other words, friends, government exists. Authority, power exists only because God has ordained it to exist. His intention, the purpose of government, is for the civil magistrates to function for the good of the people, wielding the sword for his judgment against wrongdoers. Again, we'll continue reading there. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Don't miss those words. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of god an avenger who carries out god's wrath on the wrongdoer therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid god's wrath but also for the sake of conscience government it's a good gift of god now all of you are thinking it i'm thinking it too we're gonna say Well, let's be honest. Government does not act very good most of the time, right? They they don't do good things. Yes, they are intended to be uh, an instrument of good, but they are sinful and they do bad things and we see it in front of us all the time. And that's right. Government is corrupt because it's full of sinful men and women. It's true even to the point where God has raised up leaders over the course of history to reject and overthrow governments. And so there are times where the church, where as God's people, we must follow him rather than follow men. And so we speak out and we resist even government. But we should do so cautiously. We should do so with that verse 5 of Romans ringing in our ears. One must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. should be careful how we function with our governments. We should be careful how we view them. Legitimate government is meant to be an instrument of God. Now, I'm going to show my hand here, but if he is the king of all things and in the realm of, of human government, he is the king who works through the sword is his instrument. And so we are obedient to human, go- human governments because really our obedience is to whom? It's to God. And if he is the one who is in charge, uh, if he is the one who is in charge of kings and presidents, then we are being obedient to him. And so what do we render? Well, that's the second part of our question, right? We, we know why Jesus has done this. What, what do we render? Well, obviously from our passage, and Paul says it too there in verse 7, we render our taxes. (laughs) Listen to what Paul says. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Pay our taxes. Right there in scripture. Secondly, We render to the government obedience. Obedience to laws and regulations that are legitimate to the point that they are following God's word. We we render our obedience. We render our prayers. Friends, we could spend a whole sermon on this point right here. But when we look out at our nation and we look out at the divide in our political landscape as Christians... Our first response should not be taken one side or the other. Our first response should be on our face, in prayer, before our God. For our leaders, the good ones and the bad ones, for political parties, for people on the other side, we should be spending our time, above all else, in prayer. We owe that to these people who are in authority. And then finally, we are are called to participate in the means offered to us of government, right? Voting, Uh, our input when it's asked for, we we are required, we uh, we should render that to Caesar. So, in short, we are to give honor uh, to those who are to be honored, uh, to those who honor is owed, and through that we are to honor God. Now... Uh, some may doubt all that I've just said there, especially the part about honoring God through governments, through these leaders. How, how could it be that God is honored when I, I render to, to Biden or to Trump or to any other leader? How, how could it be that, that these folks were honoring God when they rendered to Caesar, who claimed to be God, right? Who was clearly not following God himself. How can they render and it be uh, uh, an honor to God? Well, go back to to Luke and remember Jesus' example there. What was it that he asked for? It was a coin, right? And whose image and whose inscription was on the coin? It was Caesar's, which meant from an earthly perspective that that coin belonged to him, right? Now, go back to Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but you know it. What does it say there? Whose image, whose inscription is written upon all men? Whose image is on every single one of us? It's the image of Almighty God, right? And so if we take that to its logical conclusion, what we come to realize is that just as the coin belonged to Caesar, so too does Caesar belong to God. As one born in his image as one made in his image he belongs to God not only does he belong to God but all that is Caesar's belongs to God and so again that there is a sense where giving to Caesar means we are giving faithfully to our God now all of that leads us to the second part of the question what will we render to God And the answer has to be, given what we've just said about the image of God that we bear, the answer has to be that we render everything to him, right? Our stuff, our obedience, our bodies, our souls, our worship, all of it belongs to him. Friends, it needs to be said that this also includes our politics, right? I'm not advocating for for a combination of church and state here. We know that that's not the right way to do things, and that's not what God calls us to do either, right? His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. That is not of this world. But what I am advocating for is a combination of our Christianity and our politics, right? So, Some of you will know Cornelius Van Til. He was a philosopher from many years ago. But he used to talk about presuppositionalism. That's a mouthful. But the idea is that anytime we come to anything, we come with presuppositions. Every single one of us, no matter whether you're a Christian or not, you come to the party with something that you cannot leave at the door. For us as Christians, what we cannot leave at the door is Christ is the truth of what he's done for us. No matter where we go, no matter what we are, are find ourselves involved in, whether it is at our homes, whether it is at our jobs, whether it is politics, we cannot leave Jesus at the door. We can't do it. Because his reality is what colors our whole worldview. It's what shapes and molds us and makes us who we are and so the church is not to be the civil government but what I do want you to recognize is that if God is king and he is king over all friends we cannot separate these things to these two things out as we said he rules in the world via the sword and he rules in the church via the spirit but the point is he rules over all Combine that with the fact that we owe him all, as his image bears, then that means we cannot separate all anything, anything from him at all. We must render to God what is His, and that means everything, everything, everything in our lives, everything we have, all of our worship, all of our praise. We render it to God. But as we conclude, let me remind you. That that what I just said is the obligation of all men everywhere. They owe all to him. It's the obligation of all men everywhere. But it is the joy of each Christian. Because not only do we realize that we bear his image, we also know that we have his Holy Spirit who has written his law on our hearts. That inscription that Jesus looks for on the coin. It has been inscribed on each one of us. And how did that happen? It's because Jesus rendered himself completely for you and I at the cross, right? What he asked us to do for him is exactly the same thing that he has done for us. He rendered his life. He gave himself up so that today we might be his own. And so, this idea of giving all for him, friends, it is a joy. It's not merely an obligation, though it is that, but it's also the desire of our hearts to please this one who has done everything for us. And so, I'll end where we started. Can we discuss politics and religion? Is there a place where the two will not divide? The answer is yes his name is Jesus and he is the Lord of them both just as he is the Lord of all things and so as Paul says uh, in Romans chapter 11 we'll end with these words for for him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen let's pray together father we consider uh, what is uh, and what are difficult subjects Uh, And, Lord, it it causes us to think deeply uh, about our own lives, about the way we're functioning in the world, not only as individuals but as a church, uh, what is important, what we look to, what we render. Uh, And, Lord, the truth is, is your image is written on our hearts, on our lives. You have written, through the power of the Holy Spirit, your law on our hearts. And so, Lord, as your people, uh, what we must render to you is all things. Uh, But Lord, help us to recognize that you are the one who is uh, the only source of authority, the only source of power. And so help us to to live accordingly out in the world. Help us to to honor those whom should be honored. Uh, Help us to render to those whom uh, we must render the things that that we should render. Uh, Lord, give us wisdom in these matters. Lord, when there comes the time where we have to look to you above all else, Lord, give us the courage to do that. But Lord, we pray that you would lead us and that you would guide us, that you would walk us through this life in the way that you would have us to go. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.